Now, Father, we are extremely thankful again that as we live in tumultuous days, we have um, in our own hands at any time we want, whether through a small instrument like a phone or a physical Bible that we carry around. We have access to your word. We have access to what you did when you created this world, what you think about history, what you think about us, uh, what you have done in your son, that, Father, any time, day or night, we can access that word and be reminded that we are your children and that you are out in front of us in everything that happens, that we were created for another world, not for this world. We were created for a world of righteousness, one that you will restore with uh, the return of your son, Jesus Christ. So we are thankful as we come to these words again that we have this access that is unlimited and always always with us. Thankful that we have it because uh, we can build our lives upon it and live more fully. We can live at repose in a quietness that you uh, want us to have. That Sabbath rest in which our heart is at peace with you. And uh, we know that our conscience has been cleaned and our body has been washed so that we can uh, live the life that you want us to live. So we thank you and pray that our minds would be awake once more and alert to hear what your spirit wants to say to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the last two chapters of the book of Hebrews, we see that uh, the writer takes the time to begin to apply all of those things that appeared, especially in chapters 1 through 10. And the, the, the center of it, if you'll remember back many, many weeks ago when we began, the very center of it, I think, is in chapter 7, when he makes it clear that we have a new and a different access to God. We have a new covenant that Jesus Christ has opened up. And so, therefore, <clears throat> he needed to be greater than the, the angels. He needed to be greater than uh, Moses. He needed to be greater than the covenant that came through Aaron and Levi, that in order to be able to open up access, unlimited, unqualified, untethered, um, untampered um, access to God, uh, we had to have a Savior, we had to have a priest that did more than the Old Testament priest did. And so uh, we do, and therefore we have this access. But in the last two chapters, he makes some applications here. In chapters 12, 1 to 2, drawing off of the whole of chapter 11, I think he says to us, be inspired. That as you look upon those who have gone before, so many, as he records very rapidly in chapter 11, who, has gone, who have gone on before us, each one of them, <clears throat> having had God set out a course of obedience in front of them, believed God and did what he called them to do. But as we saw in the end of chapter 11, that these had not uh, received the fullness of the promise that he intended uh, in Genesis chapter 3 when he promises that a seed would come out of the womb of the woman and uh, that seed would crush the head of Satan. That they did not receive the fullness of that promise because God was was, um, sovereignly manipulating better word, managing time, massaging time, so that uh, our time would come, and they with us would all receive it together. 
So be inspired, and be inspired especially to lay aside the things that are trivial to life, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and causes us to trip, to trip, to look unto Jesus, who is both the author and the completer, he who brings it to its full intention. Jesus, who's gone out before him, before us, who who thought it not robbery, uh, even though he was equal to be God, equal with God, even though he was God, to lay that aside for a time and take upon himself human flesh, that he has suffered, stayed under, endured the cross, so that on the other side, at the right hand of the Father, there would be obedience. Be inspired, and then we saw last time. Be encouraged. That, uh, yes, because we are children of the living God, He is going to uh, discipline us. He is going to bring things into be in our lives that will discipline, will teach, will admonish, will encourage, will form, will put us into the path that He wants us to walk. And uh, so don't be surprised because if we didn't receive those things... <clears throat> we would be illegitimate. We would not be His children. Because even earthly fathers discipline their children to the best they can. How much greater and perfect and more complete is the discipline that comes from our Father who is in heaven? So be encouraged. And then this third one in chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, is I think, be warned. There is perhaps no more important message for those of us who live in this ever-present day of chaos, we are surrounded by so many divergent, so easily accessible, so intervening, sometimes totally uninvited, very Christian, quote-unquote, messages that sound sweet, but I think that they are subtle subversions of the biblical message. They're especially dangerous for those who are not attentive to the time with God and His Word every day. That, that we allow the Word to reset itself in our minds so that it can experience the goodness of the emotions but not be overwhelmed by the emotions of doubt and discouragement that also come. But that our wills would be conformed to live in the way to desire the things that God wants and therefore live in the way that He wants us to live. And so, for those who do not spend regular time, that consciousness in the mind that the Spirit is resident in this new man and wants to speak the words of God back to us every day, it's especially dangerous for those who do not spend time, are not attentive to it. They become easy prey for Satan to intimidate, to confuse, um, to lie to, and to believe that, well, this is true when the Word says it is not true. So it's a dangerous time for those who do not spend time at God's Word. And they are dangerous, especially to those who wanted earthly peace and security and are drawn to the allure of the sweet words that come to them, that this is not a battle. I don't really want to be disciplined. We don't really have an enemy. Is it really serious that we have an enemy, Satan, roaming around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, who hates so, so passionately who God is that he would love to destroy everything that God has given to us? 
And so we're surrounded by these things that appear to be Christian, and we need to be careful because many of them, I believe, are subtle subversions of the biblical message. On top of all this, we are surrounded by an imploding political, financial, and especially sociological world where the relationships among people declared to be so loving are really nothing more than fleshly. They are either to be consumed in a kind of love that the Bible doesn't talk about, or more probably to be postured in a way that is not love, but it is hate, it's anger, it's bitterness. It's relationships for the purpose of me, not you. And so all of these things are surrounding us, and uh, we need to be warned. So the writer of Hebrews does that. He says, we do not have the former barriers that created distance from God. They had to stood, stand in the Old Testament from a distance and look. They always were looking <clears throat> from one posture to another posture, and it was that other posture that was the one that was the fuller revelation of God. And so he says these words, For you have not come to what may be, uh, what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Speaking of the, the, giving of the, the time of the giving of the, the Old Testament law and that mount where God was speaking to, to Moses and the thunder and the rumbles and the lightning and the people fearful to even approach it. They'd been told not to approach it. But the fear of the, of the experience of seeing God speak, God present, God revealing himself, created for these people uh, a distance. And I think that's the idea here, that the Old Testament is full of words that God intended for his people to use and to live by so that they would be protected. The law reveals God, and it reveals His best intentions for men without the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so men and women and children in that day were to, to live within the boundaries of that law and all the things that came out of it, because it was health, and it was protection, and it was provision. But the relationship with God was distant. And we saw before that even the very configuration of the tabernacle and later the temple reveals this distance as they didn't get into the presence of God. And so they begged when they saw this revelation and all this, these, uh, this, this experience of seeing thunder and lightning that this scared them. Why? Because they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And so they had barriers that God had created. Barriers natural because righteousness had yet not yet been earned, won, bought through the life, death, and burial, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it was symbolic and it was full, full of meaning and purpose and protection, but it still was distance. Instead, we have come to restoration and limitless access to God. Look at how he describes it. But you have come 
to Mount Zion, to a different Mount Zion, to the, the real Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. And we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. All that of, of those who have already gone before us, not so much of the Old Testament, but especially of the New Testament. Those born of the firstborn, the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect. And that is the intention of God in all of human history, to reach that culmination in the moment in which that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ would buy that back for men and women who have been alienated God, the righteousness that He had intended, that righteousness that Jesus gives to those who have followed Him, that uh, it is made perfect. Righteousness, or righteous made perfect. And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant between us and God, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. And so the writer reminds them that there was distance, but now there is access. There is restoration. There is indeed limitless access to God. So see to it, he says, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See, because the boundless access to God with so many others who have gone on before demands attention. It can't simply be ignored. It can't be set aside. It can't be appropriated in the mind and refused in the will. Yes, we will fail. Yes, there will be sin. But there ought to be for the one who is learning to be nurtured by the meat of the Word of God, growing awareness of the difference between good and evil. They are not stuck in the entry point into the salvation, as important as those entry doctrines are, that there is this birth that begins to bring salvation in a transformational sense, not just in a justification sense, not just with God, but with God in time as well. And so he says, see to it, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, I think we could say that this has two applications. The first application is to, to the specific audience of the book of Hebrews who were questioning, wondering, doubting, beginning to think, can we get a little bit of distance between us and these Christians be, be faithful to our Old Testament beliefs, or as the writer of Hebrews says, back off from the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ or that you say you have, back off into the law rather than to the perfect righteousness that God has now given to you in Jesus Christ. And so these were beginning to wonder. And he says to them, see to it that you do not refuse. And by that, I think, is the full understanding that of everything that has gone on before in this book called Hebrews, the fullness of who Jesus Christ is, uh, see to it that you don't refuse who, him is, who is speaking. But I think there is a secondary underline, underlining um, admonition for those of us who are not Jewish and do not live in the day that they lived, that we too need to pay attention and realize that he has spoken, that as this book began in chapter 1, in verse 1, 
Everything that God wanted to say is now complete in His Son, Jesus Christ. He spoke in times past through the prophets and, and through other means, but today He has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Why? Because if they did not escape, those of the Old Testament, when they refused Him who warned them on earth through prophets, through His Word, through the presence, the symbolic uh, representation of His presence in the Holy of Holies, through the uh, promises He gives to them in the revealed Word of the Old Testament, through the promises of supply and care and concern and property that He gives to them in the law and all of the things that come along with the law, if they did not escape when He who spoke to them on earth spoke, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Him who we can hear His words. Him who we have a more complete revelation. Him who has a series of others, thousands of others, both recorded and forgotten, but remembered as we saw in chapter 11. And those who have gone before us in the last 2,000 years of church history, and those who are going before us, even as we speak, friends and family, those whose lives we saw, and we can see the difference that God can make. See Him who, uh, listen to Him who speaks to us, warns from heaven. In multiples of ways, He warns us from heaven to take attention, take notice of. At that time, his word shook the earth. And that's what they saw on the mount as the, as the revelation was coming to, to Moses. And he was writing, and he'd gone up there himself with fear and trembling, and the lightning, and uh, the thunder, and the shaking of the earth. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, that is, I shook the earth in a, in a way that caused you to realize this is serious. I am here. I'm speaking to my prophet, prophet uh, Moses, to my, to my servant Moses. He's going to bring down to you the essences of your relationship with me, which is the law. You're going to live within the boundaries of that. And that shook the earth. But there's coming a day when uh, I will shake the earth in a different way. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So everything will be shaken. God's going to shake out. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's going to shake out all that's left of this world, Romans chapter 8, which is encumbered by the disobedience that we, we, we generated in Adam and Eve and the rest of us have lived within the rebellion, the disobedience. And so the earth itself groans under the weight of the disobedience, the rejection of the path of God that Adam and Eve took and that we have inherited, being born in sin and then confirming that birth by our own sin. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. Why? In order that what is left 
are things that cannot be shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so we, we shake the earth so that there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new relationship with God that even now is greater than it was in the Old Testament will be complete in eternity when God places us in the midst of where He is and who He is. And so He says to us, hey, be careful. This is serious stuff that God is speaking to us. I, I see three applications here that sort of bring to a conclusion why this is so serious. Number one, as we reflect on all that God has done in this book called Hebrews, ten chapters of working a beautiful argument of the greatness, the completeness, the necessity of a new covenant with God so that there might be a fuller relationship with God. So there might be that, the beginning of that relationship that God had intended for Adam and Eve before they chose rebellion. So he says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's where I began in this talk. Be warned. We're surrounded by so many divergent, quote-unquote, Christian words. Yeah, we're surrounded by lots of divergent words, most of them non-Christian, unapologetically non-Christian. They might be quasi-religious, but they're not Christian. And the radio airs and the TV and the iPods and the iPads and the computers, all of that limitless access to the thoughts of other people. But the ones that I'm most concerned about are the ones that dance in front of us as being Christian messages. That they sound sweet. You plant a seed and you'll get back more than you ever thought that you had ever planted. God wants to give it to you. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy. God will take care of that sickness. In the name of Jesus, He'll deal with it. Or even, as sounds even more apropos, that grace means that there is absolutely no longer any fear of anything. Live almost the implication. I don't believe that people who say this intend it. At least I hope they don't intend it. But it almost sounds as like grace deals with everything in such an emphatic way. You live any way you want. Now, I know that's not what they're saying, but that, I think, is the implication that comes to people. Grace means that having confessed with your mouth words about Jesus Christ that everything else is taken care of. And I think we have to be careful that we don't distort, distort grace. Grace means that God gave a gift. In order to give that gift, He had to effect mercy. And the only way He could effect mercy was to take the full wrath that He had on us because of our disobedience in Adam and Eve upon himself. And he does that by sending his son to take our place. The full wrath of God for who we are and how we live without Jesus Christ sits upon Jesus Christ. And that grace then restores us to original design, to what God had for us in the beginning. 
It's not simply a, a, a mere um, confession of something. Because as the Bible says, even the, the, even the, the, the uh, Satan and his hosts, they believe, they know who God is. The belief that breeds, that brings us to salvation begets a new life. And that new life begets a new living life that goes on. It's a new life of relationship with God that implicates by its very nature that as he forms himself in us through the residency of the Holy Spirit and the words of his living and active sharper than any two-edged sword word, that we are becoming transformed. We're becoming different people, people of righteousness. So he says, you're surrounded by these, be careful, dangerous to not push back more often on these sweet Christian messages. But I think second, there's also the reminder, we're thankful because we, we know that the living word speaks to us daily and reminds us that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it also reminds us that this earth is not always meant for peace and security. I think it would be fair to say a huge percentage of Christians today do not live, will never live, in peace and security. Internal peace, yes. External peace, no. And they, maybe more than all of us, are reminded that Jesus, by his death, burial, resurrection, and his position at the right hand of the Father, uh, gives to us the conviction that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we will fully inherit at some point that we die or Jesus returns. So we are grateful. But second, I think we, we realize that we need to respond. And so he says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. That word worship, it doesn't mean a praise song. It doesn't mean simply... Uh, a Bible verse spoke back to God. That word worship um, is used to mean service as well as worship, as well as getting on your face before the living God who has provided the access to Himself through taking upon Himself the wrath that we deserve, that we offer to Him a posture of, of, of worship, a posture of subservience, a posture of we belong to Him, we are His, and that is not a threat, that is a promise. And so we offer back to Him both this recognition of who He is, worship, and the service that comes from it, acceptable worship. And that worship is to be given with reverence for who He is and awe for the power and the things that He has done for all of us. And so life for the believer is predicated upon the fact that what God has done has a promise within it that there will be a fulfillment, a completion. There's an end story to what we have begun in Jesus Christ. And that is a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new earth, um, a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we will be full participants in.
and that here we recognize what God has done and our response is to bow down, to take the posture of service and to serve. It's to embrace gladfully, joyfully that we are His because He's created us and He has recreated us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we do that with great reverence that He is not Daddy, as some have said. He is Father. He is Heavenly Father. He is the God of the universe who takes upon Himself a fatherhood of us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But He is God. And we are awed. We have service that is in awe of all that He has done and will do. So we are grateful and we respond in worship. Why? Because thirdly, our God is a consuming fire. And that's a statement about the very nature of God. We, on one side, we could, we could say He's not going to be trivialized. As I look at the Bible, I, I, I am intrigued, always, that people become embroiled, some positively so, and it helps us understand better, some, maybe most, um, in confusion or in defense or in anger or in postures that just don't make sense, as, as if the Bible, which is an oracle of, about God, by God, is written to defend himself. I don't see that at all. The Bible is a statement by the living God of what he did, a little bit of how he did it, and lots about why he did it, and fully chucked complete with people who acted upon the, that, that he did it for them. And so God intends to be, is, I don't like that word intense, God is the center focus of all eternity. And therefore, as he images himself upon the universe, he's the center of that as well. That's the good side of it, I think. We can contemplate that we belong to a God who is so sovereign that he will and can fulfill his promises to us. But we also have at the very middle of, of eternity, the very focus of eternity, and therefore imaged on time, a God who is a consuming fire. He will not be disregarded. And so the, who, those who disregard the things that He has spoken are those who will deserve the rejection. Genesis, pardon me, John chapter 3, verse 16, that after saying that in Jesus Christ we believe, we have salvation, in 317, he says, those who don't believe are rejected already because they have not believed in the offering. Let's say that in the only offering that God has set for salvation, for their disobedience, well, for their rebellion, for their wrath that sits upon them. And so we are to be warned. So, Father, we thank you for these words and pray that we would embrace them joyfully and not fearfully. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.